0: A very happy Tuesday morning to you, uh, to our church family, and to all those who might be listening on Sermon Audio this morning. We are continuing our journey through uh, Holy Week and the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We began, obviously, on Palm Sunday with the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. We saw the crowds uh, seem to rally and and come around him and recognize him as the uh, long-promised and prophesied Messiah, they waved their palm branches and shouted their hosannas, and they laid down their garments. But appearances can be deceptive, and Christ wasn't fooled by the deception. They were looking for a different kind of Savior. We, we spoke about that. Paul says, in the fullness of time, and the pleroma of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that they might have the adoption as sons. He did not say that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to throw off Roman rule, to liberate the earthly city of Jerusalem or to liberate his people temporally. You see, they were looking for a different kind of savior. And you begin to see that even the next day as he enters into Jerusalem. He doesn't go challenge the Roman authority, he challenged the Jewish authority. He doesn't cleanse uh, Jerusalem of Romans. He cleanses the courts of the temple, of the, the courts of the Gentiles of Jewish sellers and money changers. This is not what the people were hoping for. We saw this interesting uh, event as part of the events of Monday. We looked at that yesterday. As we saw, first of all, Christ come up to a fig tree and find it barren. Then he went to the temple and found it barren as well. No obedience, no uh, fruit in terms of its service to God, claims uh, of being dedicated to the service of God, but no fruit, no obedience. Both those pictures together told the story of judgment coming upon Israel a judgment that had long been promised, long been spoken of. Now, we saw at the end of that day that Christ had returned to Bethany. We began today, really, yesterday. We saw the very beginning of the events of Tuesday and Holy Week uh, yesterday because it is the uh, second slice of bread of the and sandwich, if you will, this inclusio, where you have the uh, cursing the fig tree as part A and, and part B, and in between that is this story uh, of the temple being cleansed. And so we're not going to begin there. We've already covered it. We're going to begin in verse 27. Now, let me say before we do that this text, the events of Tuesday, could not be covered in one sermon let alone probably two months of sermons. Uh, when you look at it, there's just too much here. Too many of the memorable things that Christ said are in this one day, and we have to try to, uh, in some way, uh, deal with that and sum that up in in just a very short amount of time. And I I spent more time yesterday than I meant to. I spent slightly over thirty minutes. I really do not want to do that today, although. Uh, to do justice to this passage, you could easily preach uh, each one of these sections uh, as an individual Sunday sermon, and you would still not exhaust them. That's the amazing truth of, of the Word of God that we are blessed to have. But we're going to try to look at a, a theme that I believe emerges as you look at these events, and it's a theme of authority. Authority is a very important theme that pops up from time to time in the story of Jesus. You may remember uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this marveling of the people at his teaching because he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes, not as the Pharisees, not as the leaders they were used to. He spoke as one who had authority. And yet it's the question of that authority that will be raised today. He enters Jerusalem, and as he does, he comes walking into the temple and walks by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They came up to him. That's verse 27. Now, my friends, this is a trifecta of power in the life of Jerusalem. The The uh, chief priests are the those that rule the temple, aren't they? They are important people. The scribes are those that are over, if you will, the management of the law, these are people who are very influential in the city of Jerusalem. And then the elders, well, it's hard to get more influential than a, an elder of Jerusalem, right? The, uh, the people who sat on the Sanhedrin, these were the real rulers, if you will, underneath Rome, under, underneath Rome's administration of the city. These were the important people. This is a trifecta of power. And they've got one question, really. It's two parts, but it's the same question. They said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? It's really question part A and B, isn't it? What authority do you have, and where did you get it? It's interesting our Lord's answer, isn't it? He said to them, I also will ask you one question. (laughs) Turns the tables on him, doesn't he? You answer my question, and I will answer yours. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, the text tells us they reasoned among themselves. They tried to come up with an answer because it's a hard question to answer. Jesus really flipped the script on them. They were asking him about his authority, and he's put them in a position to basically vouch for his authority. If they try to argue that John's baptism and ministry was not ordained of heaven, then it tells us here in the text they feared the people because the people certainly thought that it was. But if they say that it was ordained by God, then who did John point to? John pointed to Jesus. John pointed to Jesus Christ. He is the one, the Lamb of God. He said, he is the one that I spoke of. The one who comes after me was before me. If they answer this fairly and honestly, although they hated John, but if they answered honestly, they will have to say, John's ministry is of heaven, which means he pointed to you, and therefore you are legitimately an authoritative figure much more than that, right? John wasn't simply saying this is another prophet or another leader. He was saying this is the prophet of God. This is the priest of God, the king of God. This is the one we've been waiting for. There is no getting around it. If he is the one, then your all's authority is questioned by him, not the other way around. You see, Jesus put them in an impossible situation and they recognize it. They come up with the only answer they can. We don't know. We can't answer the question. So Jesus says, well, then neither will I answer you by what authority I do these things. Now, what he means is this, right? It won't matter if I answer you because you don't want to hear it. You know the proper answer is that John's baptism was of God. It was of heaven. But you will not answer that because you don't want to validate me. Therefore, if I tell you by what authority I do, I do these things, you're going to reject it anyway. So instead, Jesus began to speak to them in a parable. And what a parable this is. He begins this parable of the vineyard, and I just alluded to it yesterday. It's really a reference to Isaiah chapter 5, isn't it? To a famous story told there where the prophet speaking on behalf of God brings forth that Israel is like a vineyard that God himself has planted and taken care of so much so that he asks, what more could it be asked for me to do? And yet the vineyard does not bring forth the crop that I desired it to. You could make no claim against God. God has done everything in terms of nurturing that vineyard, and yet it is still rebellious. Here, Jesus takes that story, develops it, kind of reinterprets it slightly. It's going to come to the same point, but he adds some characters in. He says, remember that story from Isaiah. And let me tell you a little more about it, because you see, God, uh, that was God's vineyard. He's the owner of the vineyard. He's the one in charge of the vineyard, and yet he put it under the management of some vine dressers. He put it under the management of vine dressers and they have not been faithful. Those who are overseeing this, vi- uh, this vineyard have not been faithful to the desire and the plan of the master. They have been steadfastly unfaithful. And so the master sent spokespeople. He sent messengers, he sent messengers, These are the prophets, aren't they? They came and they warned and they proclaimed and they brought the message and over and over they were abused and rejected. And so the master said, I'll send my own son. Certainly they would do him no harm, recognizing how dear he is to me. And yet that isn't at all what they thought, is it? It isn't at all what they thought. They saw the son coming and they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus brings the only reasonable conclusion to this story that there could be. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, clearly, this is a reference to to the uh, the uh, movement of the people of God into the Gentile world. We we can go into all all the references to that, but Romans nine through eleven it gives a great exposition, more or less, on what this is all about. But stop for just a moment and think about the message of judgment yet again seen here. It's a thread of judgment that runs throughout all of these things that Mark is giving us here there's a coming judgment upon Israel. In fact, he quotes Psalm 118, doesn't he? This very psalm, the crowds would have been crying out just a couple of days earlier, and he says, listen to this part of that. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What great irony that is, isn't it, that God is going to build this in such a way that this stone that's been rejected by the builders shall become the chief cornerstone. Their rejection of Jesus, he's warning them, is anticipated, prophesied, sure to come. And yet it doesn't slow them down at all, it just angers them. Verse 12 of chapter 12, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. Oh, but they're not done. They're not done. They're going to challenge his authority in other ways. They want to trip him up, don't they? So they come up with some plan. We're going to stump him. There's, I can almost imagine there's these questions that they have been un- unable to answer. You know, little riddles, little difficult things, that difficult sayings, difficult questions that no one's been able to answer. Let's take them, them to this teacher, this rabbi. We'll stump him. So some Pharisees and Herodians come to him and they say, Teacher, uh, we know that you tell the truth and that you're not uh, beholden to the opinions of any man. You'll be honest with us. So we have a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or is it not? Now, just as Christ had put them in an impossible situation, they think they've put him in an impossible situation. They think they've put him in an impossible situation. If he says, uh, yes, it's lawful and you should pay your taxes, then the people will be outraged. This is not the kind of Messiah they're looking for. But I think they had hoped he would actually answer the other way and please the crowds and say, oh, no, no, you cannot pay taxes to Caesar. Because then he would have fallen under the judgment of Rome. And yet his answer is astounding. He says, give me a denarius. Why do you test me, he asks. Bring me a denarius that I might see it. And when they had brought it, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. And Jesus answered and said to them, Then render to Caesar that which is his, and to God the things that are God's. Now we've spoken about this before. It's Caesar's image on the coin. Give it to him. He owns it. But my friends, you are made in the image of God. Give yourselves, yield yourselves to God. If they would simply do that, there'd be no problem. There would have never been a judgment, but we know that the wrath of God is coming. This passage has been speaking of this. They're not done trying to trip him up. They're going to go on other doctrines. What about the resurrection? You know, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. Uh, they didn't accept most of the Old Testament. They, they liked the Torah. That was about it. And so they, they thought this, uh, this question on the resurrection, which Jesus advocated the resurrection, as uh, we should, <laughs> you know, it's pretty sound biblical doctrine. Uh, they thought they could trip him up. And so they, they go back to the law and they find this uh, place where it says that, uh, you know, if, uh, if a man is married and he dies and he has uh, left no offspring, the, wife, the woman has no child, then it's the brother's responsibility to marry her. Uh, this does two things. This takes care of the widow and her need, and it also, um, it also provides an heir in honor of the brother. The family name will go on. Now, they take this merciful thing in the law and they use it to try to make a mockery of a doctrine they don't like, a true doctrine of the resurrection. They say, Well, Moses said this, but here's our question. If a a man dies and his wife marries the brother and then that brother dies and then the widow marries the next brother and that brother dies and so on and so forth, here's the question In the resurrection, Whose wife will she be? Listen to how Jesus answered this. He said to them in verse 24 of chapter 12, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise. Have you not read the book of Moses? in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Wow, what a beautiful argument. You claim to care about the Torah. You don't know the Torah. If you did, you would recognize a simple truth, when God spoke out to Moses, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He spoke about them as if they were yet alive. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we'll hear this. Here's a little applicational point. Jesus rests an entire doctrine on the proper interpretation of the tense of a verb. Can you think of a more urgent call to carefully read your Bibles than that? If they had simply carefully read their Bible, their Torah, that they accept, they would have found definitive proof of the resurrection. Now, my friends, this continues on and on, and I've got to be careful here. I don't want to make this another uh, 40-minute message. So we want to look at this quickly. Another scribe came to him and and recognized his reasoning and asked him uh, this question about the greatest commandment, and Jesus answers him, doesn't he? He says, uh, the first of all the commandments is here O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all our heart and with all the understanding and the soul and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when the Lord saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. My friends, that is close. It's not the sacrifices that avail in themselves, but something in our hearts, the disposition, the walk, if you will, of our hearts in obedience and faith to God. This scribe is close, but my friends, being close isn't in. You have to take that step, don't you, of faith? Brothers and sisters, as this continues on, there is much to be said but I love this final question that is asked because Jesus wants to really hammer home this question of who he is and what his authority is. And he asks a question for those who are resisting that he could be the Messiah. He says, I've got a question for you. How is it that scribes say that the Christ will be the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. Now, how is he then his son? Now, this goes back to a very Jewish way of thinking, doesn't it? The son cannot be greater than the father in in a lineage. Right. So if if he is his descendant, then David is going to be greater than him. You could think of that argument uh, about Levi and Melchizedek that Uh, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, and therefore if Levi is in the loins of Abraham, so to speak, then that is as if uh, Levi is offering a, a, a tithe unto Melchizedek, and therefore establishes that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than that of Levi. Well, in a very similar way here, he's saying, isn't he? If this is one of the loins of David, he cannot be greater than David. So how then can David call him Lord? Now, my friends, that question in Psalm 110 or arising out of Psalm 110 is a very interesting question indeed, isn't it? It's one to make you think. How can the descendant of David rightly be called the Lord of David? I think Christ is really presenting a strong argument for his authority right there. Now, my friends, uh, as we are going to bring this to a uh, a close, if you will, we would want to know uh, that he will go on to the Olivet Discourse. I wish I had time. I wish I had time to walk through this. One of the my favorite sermons I ever preached was in this text, uh, but we just don't have time today. But just notice that Christ is going to get into some uh, amazing discussions on future events, events of judgment. And I've often said I see this as having sort of a, a near and far uh, fulfillment. There are things certainly that are Uh, being spoken of that will happen in the judgment that Christ has been speaking of that will fall on Israel. But there are other things that I believe he is saying will tie into the end of the age. Christ is talking about both things along the way, isn't he, through this week. The judgment of Israel, the mission to save uh, his people by uh, his sacrifice, the atonement he makes, All those who put their faith in him shall not be put to shame, but shall be saved in what he has done by his grace. But there is a judgment coming on Israel and finally upon all the enemies of God. And I think Jesus is giving this grand sweep of this here in this text in a way that is amazing. And and even here, trying to just uh, go over a, a jet tour of that passage would take longer than I have. But it's clear here, isn't it, who Jesus is. He is the Lord. He is the one who, uh, through whom all things are created. He's the glorious one, the Messiah. He's David's Lord. Brothers and sisters, there's only one question that matters, and I come to it every day. Do you know him? Do you trust in him? Do you recognize that life is found only in him? Do you recognize the wrath and judgment that will fall on all those who oppose him? And and by the way, Make no mistake about it. It's made clear throughout the Scriptures you are in opposition to Him if you do not have faith in Him. For all those in Adam are at enmity with God, at war against Him, in rebellion against His majesty. It's only in Christ that we are reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Are you in Christ Are you reconciled to the Father through the atonement that Christ gave, that he accomplished according to the plan and will of God? Have you been made new not only uh, in this atonement that we're speaking of, but have you been uh, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit when you placed your faith in what Christ did for you? My friends, what other question even matters? How long this quarantine's going to last doesn't really matter in the end. What you're going to eat for dinner tomorrow, whether or not you can even find toilet paper, as important as that might seem to some people right now, it pales in comparison to your eternal fate. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you been convinced that he is who he said he is and that he has completed and accomplished what he said he would accomplish? Brothers and sisters, that's what matters. Hear the testimony of Christ. He is the authoritative Son of God, the Messiah, God in flesh, who came to give his life as an atonement for his people and praise his name for it let us pray heavenly father we thank you for your word again we thank you for this day in holy week this tuesday help us father to stay in your word to love your word to be people who love christ If there's someone out there who does not know Christ, if their heart is stirred by the Spirit, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And Father, for those of us who are yours, help us to be faithful. Help us to live for our King. We thank you for the life we have in Christ. We pray this in his holy and precious name and for his everlasting glory. Amen.